You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Back in 2008, I made the move to New York City to finally pursue my acting career here. And after a couple of years of doing regional work, though, I was still looking for my New York debut. So in 2010, having done a few odd jobs here and there, I was looking for more opportunities that could keep me here in the city. So I went to the Actors Fund, now called the more generic Entertainment Community Fund. And at the time, they offered assistance to actors looking to beef up their non-performing resume. I talked with someone about places I had worked in the past, and she asked if I had considered approaching nonprofit organizations. She mentioned it's often volunteer work at first, but can sometimes lead to paid work in the future. But she also stressed that connecting with nonprofits is not only good for the resume, but also good for our creative souls as well. Of the organizations I looked through, one was a children's charity called Only Make Believe. I sent them an email and set up a time to meet with a woman named Melissa, who was in charge of their volunteers at that time. That was back in March of 2010, and what began as a few hours here and there of volunteer office help led to part-time work as their media consultant and assisting with their gala and other marketing efforts. As part of my job, I was constantly looking through photos of the children they served and the sheer joy and excitement on their faces. I was making promotional videos of their interactive theater shows and even attending some of their events with these special children. Needless to say, I fell in love with this organization and the spirit of joy and creativity they bring to children in hospitals, care facilities, and educational venues. And all of it was the idea of one woman, Dina Hammerstein. She started out as a British actress who eventually came to the U.S. and met and married into a famous Broadway family and began producing shows here in New York. In 1999, Dina started Only Make Believe, and every November since 2001, they have held their annual gala to raise funds and awareness for the work they do. Now, in the last episode, you heard from Joe DiPietro about his beginnings with the organization. But today, you'll hear from the founder herself in this encore presentation of our conversation back in 2018 for a special segment of this podcast called The Spotlight Series. At that time, Dina was still head of the whole organization, and we talk about her early years as a TV and film actress in London, and then what led her to establish Only Make Believe. When I was a volunteer, there was a program I funded to take the children to the theater with a busload of sort of heavily challenged wheelchair kids. So basically, Only Make Believe came from, well, why not bring the theatre to them? As I mentioned, this interview was originally recorded in 2018. And at that time, Why I'll Never Make It was a one-microphone recording. And guests and myself would sit on either side of that mic to talk about their careers. And as you can imagine, audio quality wasn't that great. So for this episode, I've gone back and improved that audio quality as best I can, thanks in part to the financial support of listeners like you. Also, in 2020, as the pandemic was upon us and Dino was spending more and more time in London, 
it seemed the appropriate time for her to step aside from the organization. So I've edited this conversation as a reminder of her legacy and the important work she has left to a new generation of capable leadership as they carry on her vision of only make-believe. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, here I am in the home of Dina Harrestein. And thank you so much for inviting me and uh, letting me into your home. My pleasure. <laughs> You've been a producer for many years now. And what was it that first introduced you to theater, to performing? Many moons ago, I started off as an actress in England. I actually only fell into producing when my husband died and I took over his production company. Before that, I'd been, an, as I say, an actress in England and a published writer. I hadn't considered producing, but circumstances change. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the first thing that introduced you to theatre as a child or growing up? I was taken to the theatre at the time. I had a broken collarbone, so I had one arm hanging loose. The other one was strapped. The show seemed to be like pink and color and all the things that life hadn't actually been. So I remember standing backstage, I think I was about seven or eight, and the actress came out and said, oh, the little girl with one arm. And so I limped towards her as well. And I knew then that this was where I wanted to be. An actress with <laughs> Not only with a broken arm, but you also had to have a limp. So voila. <laughs> so that was the beginning. And how I became a professional actress in England, and I'm sure it's not necessarily true now because, gosh, we're talking a long time ago. But before you got your full equity card, you had to do a certain amount of work before you could be a full member of equity. And so one got one's equity card by actually doing school tours. A, a company of like four of us in a van would travel around the country going to a different school in the morning and in the afternoon and doing an adaptation of a fairy tale. And in many ways, when you think about how my life's come full circle, what I learned in those early days has actually you know, been translated into only make-believe. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What was the first experience for you, either on stage or your first acting bit? First television I ever did was a comedy half hour. 
at the time with an English comedian who was extremely successful. And when I think I was about like 17. And how did you, did you have to audition for that or were... I can't remember, to be honest, but I do remember that young woman who was the production assistant is still my friend all these many, many years later. So you can form extremely long-lasting friendships. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's like for being in the theater or being in performing. You get these close relationships with people and they tend to last. I know people that I've been in shows with you know, decades ago, I'm still friends with today. Yeah. Most of your acting experience was in front of the camera. I did yeah, a bit of stage, but mainly TV and movies, yeah. Yeah, and how did you transition from, you know, as you said, you were doing the school productions and then how did that blossom into more TV film stuff? Well, it was at the time in England where there was change in the air in terms of the kind of shows that were being done on television. And instead of going for sort of costume dramas or middle-class comedy kind of things, it suddenly became, you know, cinema verite. And the more kind of street cred that you had, the more useful you are. And so I started my television career with people like Ken Loach and Ken Russell and Jonathan Miller, all the really talented people. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I was very fortunate. And what did you find different about being in front of the camera as opposed to being on stage? You can be extremely intimate with the camera. If you trust the camera and the camera trusts you, it can be quite honest in a weird way. You expose quite a bit of yourself. On stage, I think you need more discipline to reach out to the audience and it's more controlled. And I felt you, looser on TV and film to scream and shout and so whatever. To a certain extent, did you enjoy that more? Did you feel like you were able to do more of what you wanted to do on screen? I think I got some more satisfying parts out of it in terms of the Primal screen kind of work. <laughs> right. Now, I was doing a little digging, and your very first on-screen credit was in A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles movie. Is that correct? No, actually, I was in movies before then, but yeah, that was a movie I was in. That I auditioned for. Okay, okay. It didn't seem such a big deal at the time. It was a big deal to everyone else, but you know what it's like when you're working with something. You just go to work. You don't think of it in those terms. Right. Yeah, I mean, because obviously the Beatles were big at that time, because this was yeah. 1964, I believe. But to you, this was just another acting job. Just done on the gig, yeah. yeah. But as you said, you had been doing on-screen stuff before then and then after then. What would you say is some of your favorite parts or a favorite moment that you remember? I would say that the most effective work was the early work with Ken Loach, like up the junction where I had an abortion on TV and it changed the rules, laws oh, wow. in England. So it had a real kind of social effect. Mm -hmm. So one did work like that, that had more of a political influence. Mm -hmm. And so did you find that a lot of the work that you were doing at that time was geared more toward having a message and, and making a point? It seemed to be. I didn't get cast in the frothy stuff, that I got to say. <laughs> yeah, you like the more gritty. Well, it seemed to be, and it's like I was also in the original Foresight saga, and I remember going on the set, the BBC, and all these lavish sets, and then there's a tiny, grubby little kitchen. Oh, that's where I <laughs> That's my part, right. in there. <laughs> yeah. From the beginning, did you always kind of 
gravitate more towards the, the heavier roles or the meatier roles as opposed to the ones that were light? I think it was how you were cast, to be perfectly mm -hmm. honest. What was it that finally brought you to America? Um, totally social. I was in London and I was introduced to a guy whose name was Michael Bennett, who turned out to be the extremely successful Michael Bennett of Chorus Line, etc., etc. Yeah. Michael was in London to choreograph Promises, Promises. And we were introduced by a mutual friend. And I was probably with words like Michael was with his feet. So it was a kind of, he immediately found me good company. Let's put it like that. And he kept coming back to London because of the production. And then at one point, I'd never been to New York. And he said, come on and come and stay with me. And so I did. And how was that experience coming to New York for the first time? Mind-blowing. Yeah, totally mind-blowing. Uh, I can still remember it quite vividly. It was also the time that I, Michael introduced to me to the man I married, Jamie Hammerstein. Well, I can say it was a pretty memorable holiday. I, and I feel as though I came to the... New York in January 1970, and I've been on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so how long did you stay in New York for that first visit? I think it was like three weeks. Michael at that time was much more successful here than, you know, we knew of him in London. So he gave you a very giddy sense of New York and Broadway. He'd take you backstage, see one number, and then mix through the alleyway to see them closing number of something else. And as I was staying with him, he was working on a show called Company. Hmm. So every morning the doorbell would ring and in would come Steve Sondheim, Hal Prince, Bobby Avian, blah, wow. blah, blah. So that was my first trip to New York. And as you can imagine. And for you, these were just people you were meeting in a trip to New York. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't this Obviously, hearing those names now is... Yes, but I've never in musical theater, you know. You never did musical theater yourself. Well, you can tell from my voice. <laughs> about the only song I could sing is Old Man River. <laughs> you then went back to London. And so what eventually brought you to America on a more permanent holiday, as you said? Well, the relationship with Jamie started and he kept coming back to London or me coming back here and... A couple of years later, we were married. So in meeting Jamie Hammerstein, you didn't really know that family or know the big name that it was. I'd How never seen a show. Right, right. You'd never seen a Ron yeah. Hammerstein show. And so when did you realize the kind of musical theater royalty that you were becoming a part of? I don't think I have. <laughs> <laughs> it was also foreign. America was foreign. Musical theater was foreign. Um, family was foreign, you know, so strange. I think a lot of the reason that Jamie was attracted to me, to be perfectly honest, was because I had my own circle of friends and my own identity. And I think that he had been so used to people always asking him about his father and blah, blah, blah. And the mere fact that <laughs> A didn't know it, didn't seem to have that much interest. He found out that it was really refreshing because I didn't want to audition for one of the shows. I had been brought up on it. You know, it was a completely different. And I think that 
he kind of liked the fact that I was there for Jamie, not the cachet of being a Hammerstein. Right, not for the name. Yeah. You were there to really get to know him. Yeah. I would imagine that that was throughout your whole relationship. It was, it was about the two of you and not so much the peripheral. Absolutely. Whenever you eventually married, you moved to America, or was there talk of him moving to London? No, we, we used to, in the early days, have a home there. His mother had a apartment there, a really beautiful apartment. As time passed and she didn't want to sort of travel so much and cut down on homes, etc., uh, she gave us the apartment, which we then bought a sort of family home in Fulham. And our son was born there and he went to school there. And so we spent a lot of time there as well as here. I don't know if many people feel this when they have come from one place and go to another, but it took me a long time to be in the place I was without missing the place I was. And that was really the hardest hurdle. I'm not in London now, but I'm fine in New York rather than, oh, I wish I was here, there. Was that part of the reason why you would go back and forth between London and New York when you were first married or? Yeah, definitely to go back and check in and still rooted there. When did America become more of your main residence? Well, when I became more American to myself is when basically after I started volunteering and then you realize when you're working in hospitals or I volunteered at GMHC, Gay Men's Health Crisis, in the Kid Child Life Program. But when you see the effect of sort of local politics, what it has on people who need help, et cetera, et cetera. And what first introduced you to that type of volunteering? Well, one of my first real friends in America was an actor who I met at the O'Neill. You know the O'Neill Center? Mm -hmm. Well, we went there for many years. Jamie was one of the original directors there. And I did a couple of seasons there as part of the company. And Robert Christian became a really, really close friend. He died in January of 1982 of AIDS, which wasn't even a word that was being used. Yeah. People didn't really know what it was at that point. No. Hard not to get political after something like that, is it? One was losing a great deal, not only of friends, but immensely talented people. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you had been an actress and a writer. And with your husband being a director, did you ever think of going in that direction? Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no way do I have the patience to be a director. <laughs> did he produce both shows in London as well as New York? A lot of the productions from here went there. And yes. And we'd travel to Australia for production. Yeah. Mostly he fell into directing a bit later on in his life. And... First of all, sort of, you know, he did a lot of his dad's musicals all around the world and stuff. 
when he was producing, he produced a lot of EST, or Sandal Studio Theatre, then was brought on board to produce I Love You, You're Perfect Now, Change, which one had no sense that 12 years later it would still be running. Yeah, it was a long-running show. It was a hugely long-running show, and Jamie died while it was on, so it, that's still the producing. I just sort of fell into his shoes for that. Yeah. Yeah. So his production company. Yeah. So what was the transition then from, from being an actress into a more producer type role? No, I acted for a bit over here. I was on Broadway in Simon Gray's play Butley with Alan Bates and worked at places like Manhattan Theatre Club, etc. But basically, as you can tell, after all these years, I'm incapable of doing an American accent. <laughs> you, you are who you are. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just seems to escape me. When the acting work wasn't as uh, fulsome as one would like, mm-hmm. I started to write, which you can do anywhere. And what types of things did Play. you first write? Um, a couple of plays over here, one called Broken English, which Samuel French published and... Yeah. What was Broken English about? Oh, that's a kind of personal story. I had kind of an unusual upbringing, and so I wrote that story. But it's interesting when you write something, you, you don't find yourself only being able to write from your autobiographical point of view. Other voices have very strong points of view too, and they'll let you know it. <laughs> yes, yes, I bet. Did you tend to collaborate in your writing, or was it more in the beginning? Yeah, I used to collaborate with a Cuban writer called Eduardo de Machado. Who do you know as well? I've heard the name. And Jamie had produced plays of his, and we got together and wrote quite a bit. And that was a fun time. Was he almost like a, I guess, a mentor of sorts to you, kind of getting you into the writing? Well, he was very free. I think the thing about my writing is that one's so influenced when you live in England by a standard of what you think language should sound like and proper, and you're kind of inhibited by the sort of Oxford and Cambridge sort of intellects in terms of finding your own voice. Eduardo allowed, I guess, for me to let my own voice out rather than try to write in the style of anyone else. As you progressed as a writer, you'd kind of left the acting behind? I would have said the acting left me behind. (laughs) I mean, the parts, I would still go back to England and do the odd telly or something like that. But it was hardly what you would call an avalanche of offers. And also, Jamie wasn't really, wouldn't have been as content if I was traveling off to do six months in Seattle and three months in this, that and the other. And work in America does mean a lot of that. Whereas in London, you can do film, stage, TV, all in the same city. Since you bring up London, what would you say is the difference living there and what you found living in New York? I would say that the friends that I have in London have been my friends for the last hundred years. There's a constancy about it that doesn't really need any kind of catch-up, that you're immediately in the now with them. And it's a different way of socialising. In London, the social life is you go to a friend's house, 
then you hang out and see who comes over. It's far less kind of programmed and therefore in a way more spontaneous. But obviously you found a home and, and uh, an enjoyable life here in New York. So from the writing, how did that blossom into production? Was that through Jamie's production company and then his passing when you took over? Becoming a producer, yes. And the writing models all to do with only make-believe. Mm -hmm. And the producing, really, when you say producer, one feels a bit of a fraud because it's not something one actually chose or one would say one has any expertise in. It's just a question now and then you care for a show and you want to see it on the stage. That type of attitude or the way you look at theatre, has that informed the types of shows that you, that you do go after? I think I'm more interested now when I think about it. I'm more interested in a new play, I would think, than anything else. You have produced only one writer of Hammerstein. Allegro. Allegro. Yeah. yeah. That was in D.C. Where it won the Helen Hayes Award, actually. It did, yeah. Joe did the rewrites of the book. Joe from, uh, from oh, Love, Love You. Yeah, yeah. You spoke about volunteering that you had done. What eventually led to the creation of Only Make Believe itself? When I was a volunteer, there was a program I funded to take the children to the theater. And on a Wednesday matinee, midtown, with a busload of sort of fun, heavily challenged wheelchair kids. It's an incredibly overwhelming sensory experiences just for anyone. Although they love the experience, one used to feel it, you know, is exhausting. So basically, Only Make Believe came from, well, why not bring the theatre to them? When my husband died, that's what I decided to do. Very fiercely so, because I've grown very attached to a lot of the kids that one would have worked with in the institutions or hospitals one volunteered. And I was pretty devastated when Jamie died and didn't want those children not to get the affection and love and fun one had brought to them. So... Only Make Believe was created to bring a group of actors to give them an hour of entertainment, participation, release. What were the, the challenges in getting such an operation underway? One was fortunate because one had been in a hospital environment. And because one knew the staff in the hospital and they'd known you over years of it was easy for me to say, would it be okay if I tried this out? A bit like a pilot program. And I really had no idea, actually, what the structure was then. I just knew the sense that of bringing the plays to them. From the early experiences of the school plays, etc., it was really obvious that kids love to participate. And if they're having a good time and want to believe you're a fairy princess, even though you're a salon, whatever, they will. And so I knew that kind of interaction with children. In America, they're not used to participating in theater. It's just a, you experience. Something they watch and yeah. yes. So the idea of bringing that sense of English pantomime was the idea. And, and in the beginning, it was 
more improvisational, and then you realize, no, you need a beginning, middle, and end. Right. So basically, the kids teach you, really, what works best for them. So in, so in that first year, it was really just an experiment. Yeah. We're kind of trying yeah. things out. Yeah. Where, did you yourself perform at no. all? No. Yeah. No. You, you brought in other actors. Yeah. And where did these actors come from? Were they people that you know, or did you audition new people? Yes, auditioned. And basically, the first group of actors we probably worked with were ones that had actually experience in educational theatre. And it was before September the 11th, 2001. Right, because this is 1999 when this was... Yeah, end of 99, beginning of 2000. And at that time your access into these places was a lot less complicated than it is now. You know, when I said I'd come to volunteer, uh, you know, nobody went through any compliance or this, that, or the other. Obviously, that's changed radically. So whether it would be possible to start a pilot program without really knowing where it's going anymore, right. but I was fortunate enough to be able to experiment and come up with what we feel is working in terms of how we present the theater to the kids. And at what point did you see Only Make Believe? Now it's something that's really moving forward and becoming a, a mainstay in these hospitals. The way that it was a pilot program, one didn't actually follow it through. In like now, as an actor, if you're doing a TV series, they sign you for eight years. Mm. But I didn't realize when I started to be, oh yeah, eight years, you know, 18 years. You realize it's working and then you want to reach more and more kids and then other people sort of sign up because they believe in the mission of it. And so it's grown quite organically. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Your connections with actors and other people in the performing arts. Did that help OMB grow through the years? Absolutely. I think that the endorsement of so many sort of successful actors, stars, whatever you want to name them, has been incredibly helpful. And I would think most charities depend a lot on the celebrity that they can bring to it. Yeah. Yes, because the people associated with Only Make Believe Now, Ian McKellen, Jude Law, these are huge stars. And... Are they people that you've asked to bring on or did they find out and want to be a part? Well, 
I mean, I've known Jude since he's 19. I've known Ian over 40 years. It's not like they're not in the know of what you're doing or trying. Right. So in that way, it's not been a hard ask. Mm -hmm. Would I, you know, if I have any uh, questions that need a lot of thought, I'd certainly ask Ian. I value their input a lot. Has it grown in ways that you didn't anticipate? It's grown very satisfyingly when I sit here and think about the little faces that I can see, you know, dressed up and having fun. And we did an event in D.C. a couple of weeks ago for a sunshine camp for cancer children, children going through chemo or in recovery, a hundred of them. And just to see them having fun is humbling and incredibly gratifying. Absolutely. Yeah, I was... I've been a volunteer for I Make Believe Myself. I started back in 2010. And I have had a chance to, to see what the actors are doing who are so passionate and involved with it, but then to see the children's reaction and how energized they get. And it is, it is quite uh, inspiring to see that, to see these and children. Our actors are wonderful with the children. <clears throat> And the other thing that I also learned many, many years ago in, on the school tour, one of the schools we went to was a special needs kind of school, something that I hadn't experienced before as an actor. And gosh, they were responsive to the show. But when we were leaving, they didn't want us to go and kept asking when we would be back. And that stuck with me so much. And that's why I only made believe we go back for six weeks in a row. So those children could ask and they're always going up, we'll see you next week. It seemed very important for me that these children, it wasn't just a one-off. And it's also important for us that the actors are the same team so that the kids know it's the same three actors coming in for the six weeks. So they got, they get to know the same faces. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it started in just one hospital or two hours? Okay. The Rusk. Rusk is a reader or children who've been through very critical surgery, a lot of mental and physical disabilities. And the children were usually for quite a lengthy stay. When I'd volunteered there, I'd obviously got to know children. And I realized, you know, some of them most probably are parents now, you know. Mm. You don't think of that. I still see them as three or four. (laughs) Who knows? So basically... That was a long-term care unit. So you knew you were going to be with the same children for the six-week cycle. Since then, obviously, we've gone to a number of hospitals or special schools for autism. And I didn't anticipate in the beginning, but we have a very talented actors who could adapt to whatever the audience is. And we've learned to adapt shows for low functioning, much better functioning. And for instance, the autism schools, they like the same play for the six weeks. Mm. They want to get familiar with that. And now years later, we can do two plays in the six weeks, but no way could you give them six. Right. So you adjust to that. Did you first start writing some of them or did you have other people collaborate? I think I started writing them when I realized that we needed a beginning, middle, and end. Instead of just improving the whole thing. Yes, yes. I also didn't want it to have to do with their issues. I wanted it to be an escape 
from those kind of issues. So I wanted to bring in silliness and verse and all the things that I hope is fun for them. Working on a new script, it'll come out and then they'll rehearse it and then we'll adjust it as we see how the audience... That makes sense. Yeah. You see how the audience reacts to it and then you can adjust accordingly. Uh, What I've realized, and I think it's a useful lesson probably for anyone in the theatrical profession, is nothing's ever perfect. You just do the best you can. And I can pace the corridors outside a hospital as they're doing only make-believe, and I'm upset if they get one of my lines wrong. And it's like, it could be just the same as if I was pacing up and down outside the National. So basically... It teaches you quite a bit about submitting to the circumstances. Yeah. And it's all about the moment. Yeah. yeah because you yeah. never know what's going to happen yeah. at the moment. You know, and in our situation, you you know, somebody has to come in and deal with the changing the tubes, maybe on a kid or. How does the medical circumstances affect the performance or, or affect the types of places that you'll go into? Well, there are a couple of, you know, when the kids are in an IC unit or they're isolated from other children, and then there's a kind of studio thing where we do a, in front of a green screen, we'll do one of our shows with phone-ins for all of the kids to be able to respond to it. Interesting. Yeah. So so the actors will be in one central room. Yeah. And then the kids can yeah. watch. And they'll ask questions and, you know, and the kids can roll it. How has it been different? producing shows for Broadway, off-Broadway, and now producing those types of productions? Well, what's different is you're not doing only make-believe to make money. You're just doing it to make kids feel happy. So there's no expectations of anyone being let down by it not achieving this, that, or the other. And we pay our actors. Mm Mm-hmm so that we have the best quality and they have the commitment and and respect that they deserve. The actors themselves are certainly, I've met several of them throughout the years, and they definitely have a passion for this cause as well, for the organization itself. Yeah. And it's something that they thoroughly enjoy doing. I think everybody feels a connection to it who's involved with it. I think one of the and one didn't expect this, but it's a very hands-on organization, as you know, from your involvement with it. The volunteers get to meet the kids, get to know why they're making the costumes, etc., or, or the crowns for the kids. So everybody, it's not something over there, it's right here. And the volunteers are really the lifeblood of the organization. Yes. And it's not just individuals coming in, like myself, I was just an individual who wanted to be a part of something. And so I started volunteering. Well, you have corporations and businesses also. And I believe that that's one of the things that like the costume collective yeah. bring in businesses that want to help out for a day or so. Yes. A lot of the corporations over here, I don't know if it's required, but they do involve themselves with volunteer work. So there's a number of corporations that will take our actors and will take all the materials and then the corporate staff will in their lunch hour come and be part of our Mm. costume collective as we call it right and they seem to get a great deal of fun out of doing lots and grass themselves actually have been in an office environment all day so it's a win-win yeah because they're pushing papers where yeah yeah and then they get to make a kid's crown yeah (laughs) with that type of volunteering also comes fundraising. How have you balanced the 
creative and the inspirational side of, of what you do with the kids with the need to raise funds. Oh, <laughs> that's always a challenge. And we've been very lucky in as much as that our gala has been successful every year. And that's turned corporate as well as individual support that has pretty well sort of sustains the yearly budget. It would be lovely to find other avenues of constant support, but Americans seem to be very generous individually. I wouldn't say I've, we've had too much luck in sort of state grants or government support. So it's mostly individuals and businesses. Yeah, yeah. You'd mentioned the gala. The gala is something that happens once a year. Yeah. And, and when, when was the first gala? The first gala, funnily enough, wasn't the first year we started. It was actually 2001. And we've always picked the first Monday in November. And obviously it was so soon after September the 11th. One didn't know whether to go ahead with it or not. But then we did, and Ian hosted, Ian McKellen hosted, and it was at the West Side Theatre where Joe's I Love You was playing. So in that way, we had what was needed in terms of a gala. I don't think we gave out awards. I don't think we had a corporate or anything like that. I think it was just a show, a fun show, actually. Mm Mm-hmm just to announce who we were and what we were doing. And I imagine being at that time, so close after 9-11, that it kind of took on another purpose or had a little more meaning to it. Yes, and I was grateful that after September the 11th, that I already had access to hospitals so I could, so to go there to do something positive was a really, I think that's when I finally became a New Yorker in my Mm. mind, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't in the city at the time, but I was actually in Japan. So when I came back to the States, that's when I, it really hit me what had happened while I was gone yeah. and looking at the pictures. And even though I wasn't in New York, it, it affected the country as a whole. And so I can only imagine being here in the city, what it was like in the months after 9-11. So I can still remember going into sort of Bellevue or this, that, and the other and seeing all those photographs or missing people. Like- yeah. And did that affect or change, or did you have to alter anything with only make-believe and the type of program you did? In a weird way, I think that it actually made the hospital style more appreciative. They was just relieved to hear laughter, I think. And so I found in a way that it brought the staff in to appreciate only make-believe but I did feel that it meant something more to them after that, yeah. yeah. I felt we were really welcomed. And then with each success in Gala, it seems to have become a little bit more solidified. Well, it's got it's Broadway to Broadway, is that what you're saying? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What have you enjoyed about seeing that growth over the years? The galas, the presentation, the different posts that you've had and performers? It's always nerve-wracking. I feel as though I've been doing a wedding every year. <laughs> now I need presents. Hello. Do right. you write to you? <laughs> um, they're fun. They're really good fun. And like the idea of doing a gala that isn't also like an auction and a chicken dinner. And, you know, it's, it's a show. It's basically what OMB is about, is just to give you fun and variety and hopefully cheer you up. 
throughout Only Make Believe, you still continued to produce on Broadway and, and other shows. How have you balanced doing both at this point? Well, there are some times when the main thrust of one's time is involved with a production. And it seems important to me now at this stage in my life that I want to make sure that OMB is in the right place. We're going to be 20 years old next year. And I feel that's a real milestone. And I wouldn't mind making sure it's in really safe hands in not only the people that run it, but also the financially safe hands. So maybe I could think about going to London and starting it there. Ah, yes, because you've you've started an office in DC. Yeah. Yeah. How how was that process? That it's really, really going well and they've had great success and they're not necessarily difficult, but one didn't know it was going to be as successful as it is. One of our board members moved out there and one of our actors moved there because her husband was relocated. And they formed this incredible team and got a team around them, and they now have their own advisory board, et cetera, et cetera. So it's still absolutely the essence and mission of OMB. So one can see that it can flourish, and it might be a nice thing for my old age to start it in London, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And what has been, in your experience, producing in London and producing in New York, what have been the, the differences there? Well, the main difference is the economics, obviously. (laughs) You can produce a play in London for approximately a third of the cost that you can do it in New York, which therefore means taking a risk in New York is a less likely proposition. Much more costly to take a risk. Yeah. So at this point, what do you see in the future, what do you hope for in the next, say, five years? What would you like OMB to continue to grow and become? I'd like it to continue on its path, growing at a pace that it can afford to grow at without getting too big for its boots, but always so that it could sustain. I would like to see the vitality and commitment and excitement so that it always remains new. The thing about OMB that's also, it's changing all the time. You know, you adapt this and you do, so it's, it doesn't get boring in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think for everybody who's working there, that's a vital thing. Absolutely. And what has been the best advice, whether professional, personal, that has led you in your life? Don't be afraid to make mistakes. We all do. Mm-hmm. And we'll continue to. But if you believe in what you're doing, just carry force. And how would you say that that has best been implemented in your own life? Well, by giving back. Yeah. The thing I'm grateful for is that I did start volunteering. And my life wasn't just about me and mine. And I'm a very small bubble. I'm glad I've been exposed for of the world. Thank you so much for joining me in this encore presentation of my conversation with Only Make Believe founder, Dina Hammerstein. To learn more about this wonderful children's organization, go to onlymakebelieve.org or look for the link in the show notes. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver Jones. 
in charge of editing, writing, and producing this podcast. Make sure to join me next week for an all-new episode as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.